your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. This morning as we continue working our way through Luke's Gospel, we come to the first of many songs. In fact, in some traditions, uh, uh, there, there are four in these opening verses, and these songs are very important. They have Latin names, and they are sung. Um, they are in many hymnals. And in many ways... Um, Luke's gospel then in these opening chapters is something like a musical. There is action taking place, there is dialogue, and then suddenly people are breaking out into song. And if um, that bothers some of you men, don't think of that so much as a musical of the Broadway variety as much as perhaps a musical of the Lord of the Rings variety. If you have read the books or seen the movies, you know that uh, they are these burly men, bearded men, are getting ready to hack to pieces their enemies, but they stop and they sing a song first. Uh, and so, uh, if, if that helps, think of it. Think of it like that. This morning, the song that we see is, in almost every sense, a gospel song. Though the gospel message itself is only implicit in knowing the context that that it is coming from Christ, it is nevertheless all about the coming of Christ. It is a response to the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel message that has been proclaimed to Mary with the promise of her bearing the Savior. Therefore, the gospel has been revealed to Mary. It has been revealed supernaturally to Elizabeth and now at the blessing of Elizabeth as, upon Mary as the mother of her Savior. Mary stands back and ponders all that the Lord has done for her, and she seeks to magnify him with this song. This is what we want to read this morning. Follow along as I begin at verse 46 of Luke chapter 1. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the word of God this morning. Mary says she magnifies the Lord. To magnify something is to glorify it. It is to show its greatness. It is like looking through a telescope at distant stars, having their brilliance magnified to your eyes. And magnifying the Lord is what this song is all about. It is expressing the magnification of God's glory in the heart of Mary through her words. It is giving rise in song to what God has done in her soul. It's not surprising then to see that this song is all about God himself. It is all about the Lord. One pastor has identified 17 attributes of God described in this song. It's Mary putting God on display for what he has done, not just in the past, but in the present, in her life, and what he will continue to do for his people in the future. And this morning when we stand back and get this picture of God that Mary herself has come to not only see but to know experientially, the thing that we should desire is to reflect back on our own life. 
retrospect back not just to the great line of past work that God has done for his people, but specifically what he has done in our own lives and what he has promised to do for us and for all of his people. And therefore, our desire should be to magnify God in a similar way that has happened in Mary's heart and as she is seeking to do in song. And the question is, how do we go about doing that? How do we actually go about glorifying God with our lives? How do we magnify his worth? Well, within the prayer itself, Mary shows us five ways that we should magnify the Lord. The first thing that we see is this. We should magnify the Lord by treasuring his word. Treasuring God's word. One of the things that you may or may not know is that there are all kinds of scholars who write articles and monographs, even massive commentaries on books of the Bible, yet they themselves are not believers. I did not know anything about this until I got to college, and it was the most astonishing thing in the world as these scholars who, who, who come from prestigious Ivy League schools who have multiple degrees, and they constantly grapple with the biblical text trying to understand it, and yet they themselves believe nothing of what it says. They can accurately say, this is what Paul believed about Christ, putting to shame some pastors and their knowledge of Paul's letters, and yet they reject it totally as myth and superstition. And one of the biggest critical comments on this part of the Bible is seen in this very song. It comes in the belief that somehow Mary could have composed this song. They, they say, you're kidding me, right? Mary didn't write this. It's probably something Luke came up with, or maybe something the early Christians wrote, and Luke incorporated in the song. After all, think about who Mary was. She is this young teenage girl from a backwater town, most likely illiterate. And when you look at this song, it is just too lyrical. It is too artistic. It is too full of references to the Bible. And they say, Mary couldn't have wrote this. We can understand why they would think that. Because when we, when we look at this prayer, it is soaked with Scripture. Vir virtually every line is a reference to some other part of the Bible. There are quotes and allusions that are the very language of God's word that Mary is using as she gives him praise. We see references to Psalm 102, Psalm 22, and Psalm 44, and 89, and 98, and 147, and 25, as well as references to the books of Genesis, and Isaiah, and Job, and Micah, but especially from the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel. Mary is, is literally walking through the Old Testament, picking up these, these precious jewels of truth from God and bringing them together, as it were, as a, a, as a crown to magnify the worth of God. But there's no need to doubt that Mary composed this song-like prayer of her own. We only need to consider that she has taken the Bible and she has first committed it to memory. She has committed it to memory. Think about the significance of this, though. Although many Hebrew boys were taught to read and write, apparently few women were. And yet here's a young girl who has several verses, several, several verses of the Bible completely committed to memory. She has no access to the Bible at home. She cannot uh, pull it up on her tablet or her, or her iPod or whatever mobile device. She doesn't even have a bit of scroll lying around the house. Uh, not available. And yet all of this is queued up in her mind, ready to go, memorized, stored there for her use. How? Well, I would say probably at least by two ways. First of all, she faithfully gathered with her family and her people at the temple, at the synagogue, and she faithfully and clearly, intently listened both to the reading and the explanation of the Word of God. We, we are far too tempted, I believe, when, 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 when someone stands and reads the Bible 
even a service like this, or perhaps when we sit at home and, and flop the Bible open in the comfort of our couch with a, a cup of coffee in our hand and maybe the dog under our feet, to, to not listen to what God's Word is actually saying. And yet here's a girl who listened so intently that she memorized it. I think secondly, she probably had parents who obeyed God's command in Deuteronomy 6 where God says that as my people, you will speak of my laws, you will tell of my greatness, you will speak my words when you go all throughout your day. You will teach your children when they rise up, when they lie down. And all that you do, you should be talking about me and my word. I think what Mary heard at the temple from the priests and what she heard at the synagogue from the scribes, her parents likely reinforced at home. It reminds me of a pastor that I heard talking once about his great-great-grandfather who had been a slave in the American South. He was completely illiterate, and yet upon hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and believing, he had a voracious appetite for the Word of God. He could not read it for himself, so eventually he got his friends and his, his grandchildren to read the Bible to him. Every time they would come to visit Grandpa, or, or, or Papa, as they would call him, they, he would say, go get that book, and I want you to read me something. And sometimes he would tell them very specifically, read me this chapter, read me this whole book. And they would sit and they would read to him, so much so that on his deathbed, he was quoting the Bible back to them. Here's a man who could not read, could not write, and yet had committed God's word to his memory, just like Mary had. But more than committing it to memory, she had also considered its meaning. She'd also considered its meaning. Even at her young age, Mary's mind and soul have become a receptacle for God's word. She's not just memorized it, though. She's actually understood what she's read. She's actually understood what she has put into her mind. She has grasped its significance even for her own life. And so now as she experiences the phenomenal and unbelievable and completely unexpected blessing of God and, and being the one who is going to bear his son, the Messiah, she needs appropriate words to express gratitude and joy. And, and you, you, you think about what is your first response to anything, right? What, what, what is the first thing that you say or you do when, when disaster comes? We were, Melinda and I were watching this romantic comedy, and, and the question that came up is, if there was a fire, what would be the first thing that you would grab in 60 seconds? And she realizes that she doesn't want to marry this guy for, because the first thing he does is she, he goes for all the technology. He goes for the laptop and for the cell phone, all this kind of stuff. And she's watching him and just thinking, I don't, I don't want that guy. That's not the most important thing in, in our life. And likewise, what is the thing that comes out first? What is your first response? For Mary, she experiences this amazing blessing, and then she comes to see her cousin Elizabeth, who blesses her as well because little six-month-old preborn John leaps in the womb because really, hey, this is the mother of Christ, and she's just overwhelmed. What comes out first? But God's own word, the very thing that she has memorized. It has welled up from the deepest parts of her being the language she uses to praise God. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. So again, I ask, what comes out of you more than anything else? When you get good and angry, good and angry, what comes out of your mouth? When something really wonderful happens, what comes out of your mouth? Where does the credit go? When life kicks you around in the gut and knocks out your teeth when you're on the ground, how do you respond? What kind of words do you use to express yourself? Are you crass or crude? Maybe they're not even profane, but simply self-centered with little room for God. 
what a better way for us to magnify God, to show his worth and his greatness and his glory than by treasuring his word, by taking delight in it to the point that we follow Mary's example and the example of so many others, including Jesus himself, and we memorize it and we understand it and we take it into our life, into the most deepest parts, so that when 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 the unexpected things of life, for, for evil or for good, come, what is the response but the very words and truths about God? That's one way that we can magnify God if we follow the example of Mary here. But a second thing that we can do, we can seek to know God's character. We can magnify God by knowing God's character. When I say no, I don't mean no as in I could pass a pop quiz on this. I mean no in an experiential way. It means that the events of your life have unfolded in such a way that these truths are as clear and as real to you as anything in the world. As the nose on your face, you believe and have experienced this reality. What does this prayer reveal that Mary knows about God? Several things, but three important things about his character stand out. First of all, she knows that God is mindful of his people. God is mindful of his people. In verse 48, Mary says, He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Later, she says, He has done great things for me. God is at work not just generically, but specifically in the lives of his people. This is important as we, have, as we have sought to make the point over and over again so far in this series that God is a personal God. He, he does not stand afar off and aloof, uncaring and unknowing and unfeeling towards the situations and the details and the lives of his people. Even at your worst, God has his eye on you. Jesus says, think about that the sparrow, the, the, in his mind, the most worthless bird in the world, and it flies around and suddenly it just drops dead and falls in the field. He says, that doesn't happen apart from the hand of God. And he says, take comfort because you are worth far more worth than many sparrows. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that God not only has his eye on the sparrow, he has his eye on his people. He is mindful of them. God knows that Mary is poor. He knows that she's a nobody in the world's eyes. He knows all this and more. And yet she says, he has looked upon me. He has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. That that is one of the most astounding truths that we could ever think or say. And Mary knew it well. She knew it to be true. God had looked upon her. But more than that, he had looked upon her as the God who is mighty in his acts. He, who is mighty in his acts. God is mindful of his people, but he's also mighty in his acts. In verse 49, we read Mary saying, He who is mighty has done great things for me. This speaks to the power of God. Now let's just think about this for a second. It doesn't do us much good if God is mindful of us, if he has his eye on us, if he can't do anything about our circumstances, right? If, 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 if Clark Kent is your best friend and you know his identity, that's good, right? But when he's exposed to kryptonite and he's powerless, he's not much good. He's just kind of a, a, a lumpy sack, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, you know, even Luther can, 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 can take him down. No good to us. 
right? Likewise, if we have a God who is covered in kryptonite and unable to do anything in this world to bless us or to alleviate our pain, what good is it that he has his eye on us? In, in, in my humble opinion, this is a little soapbox. We'll just stand back over here for a second. Uh, one, of the, one of the most ridiculous things I have ever heard anybody say is when some disaster happens and, and the news broadcaster, who is clearly an atheist, can only say, our thoughts are with them. Who cares? Who cares if you're thinking about them? What good does that do? Pray for them. Call out to Almighty God that he will act and he will comfort them and he will alleviate their suffering. My thoughts are with you. Can you imagine if God said that? Well, I'm thinking about you. I don't want you to think about me. I want you to show up and I want you to do something, God. And Mary says, that's the kind of God that has his eye on me. He is one who is mighty in his acts. He says in verse, she says in verse 51 that God has shown strength with his arm. In doing so, he has brought down the mighty. Why? Because he's more mightier than they are. He is, he is all-powerful, the Bible says. There is nothing that can stop his hand. That his arm, a symbol of strength, is never short. It, it never fails to reach out and do what he wants it to do. It always accomplishes his purpose because even the most powerful people in the world cannot stand against him. He is mighty in his acts. But third, he is also magnificent in his holiness. He is magnificent in his holiness. In verse 49, Mary simply says, holy is his name. What does it mean for God to be holy? We often think of moral purity when we think of something being holy, and that's certainly part of what the word means. If something is holy, it is morally pure to separate it from sin. But when the word is used in reference to God, when, the, when it says God is holy, it means more than that. In fact, when you look at the, the course of the whole Bible more than anything else, God is ascribed as being holy. And when you look at the way it's used, we realize it's, it's the closest thing we have as an adjective to God himself. For God to be holy is for God to exist, as one scholar says, in all his godness. Whatever it means to be God, that is what he is. And he is that in fullness. Thus, he is not just morally pure. The Bible says he is holy, holy, holy. That means he is good, better, best. He is the most holy being of them all. He is the Lord, and there is no other, the Old Testament says repeatedly. The question is, then, we think about Mary knowing God as this, as this being, mindful of his people, mighty in his acts, magnificent, just just glorious and awe-inspiring in his holiness. Is that how you know God? Is that, is that how you know him? And again, it's not, it's not just what you know about him. It's not just what you pick up out of a book and read and say, okay, that, that's who God is. I can, I, I can read a biography of, of some historical figure. And with reasonable certainty, I can, I can assume the biographer, who has won Pulitzer Prizes and spent hours and hours and hours, maybe years of his life researching the subject, he's given me an accurate description. But I do not know that person. I cannot be friends with John Adams. I cannot be friends with, with, uh, with, with Ted uh, uh, Roosevelt or, or anybody, any other famous person. I can, they're gone. They're dead. Right? I cannot know them in that way. I can simply know about them. And yet... We are not like that with God. He invites us to know him, not just know about him. If we just know about him, the Bible says that then we are damned to hell and lost forever because he calls us to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. One lady 
came to visit her son when he was studying at Oxford, and he worked at the library there. He was doing a, a theological degree, and his small apartment, or flat as they called it over there, was not big enough for her to stay, so she stayed with another librarian who was uh, of, a, of another denomination who thought she was a believer. But after the mother left, the lady came to this other son, her friend, fellow librarian, and said, you know, it was the most amazing thing to have your mom stay with me because we talked about God a lot. And she talked about God as if she knew him. Friends, that's, that's the point. That's what the Bible is driving us to. That's what God himself is inviting us to, is to know him. And the question is, how do we know him? Is this how you know God? Is this the kind of God that you pray to? Is this the kind of God that you trust when you roll out of bed in the morning? If you don't see God in this way as being mindful of his people, mighty in his acts, and magnificent in his holiness, then you will never be an effective servant of the Lord God. You will never be someone like like Mary or even the most average of God's servants. Because if you do not see God as the sovereign, mighty Lord over all things who exists in perfect holiness, then he will be someone that you can refuse anytime you want. You say, no thanks, I don't, I don't want to do that today. If he isn't one who keeps his eye on his people, caring deeply for their every need, then he will never be someone that you will come to trust with your life in the most difficult decisions and circumstances. But if we see him in the way that Mary has seen him, then we will live in a way that shows it, and we will magnify him. We will show the mighty and the great and the wondrous God that he is. We can magnify God by treasuring God's word and by knowing God's character. But thirdly, we can also magnify God by enjoying his salvation. By enjoying God's salvation. In verses 46 to 47, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. To have a Savior is to experience salvation. Mary believes that God is her Savior and part of the magnification of God in her soul is the rejoicing, the, the joyous delight that she takes in the fact that God is her Savior, that she has experienced His salvation. And that God that she rejoiced in is the same God who continues to offer salvation today. Specifically, we can enjoy His salvation, and it is a salvation from our sin. A salvation from our sin. There is... A, Unfortunately, an exceptional amount of misunderstanding about Mary today. Some believe that because Christ is holy, Mary herself must have also been holy, even to the point of believing that she was sinless all her life, that she was con conceived in a normal way and yet supernaturally prevented from having a sin nature. That sinlessness then leads people to ask, how could a sinless person die and simply be left to rot in the ground like everyone else? It, it somehow doesn't seem right. And so they suppose that though she might have died a normal death, though some even deny that, she certainly didn't die and decompose like the rest of us. She did not suffer the effects of sin and death because she was sinless. But the problem is the Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. Don't get me wrong. We do not want to devalue Mary and her example and her service to God. She was an amazing young woman who was shown an amazing grace from God, but we should never exalt her above the position she's given in the Bible. To do so is to engage in speculation that not only goes beyond the Bible, but even contradicts her. 
Mary herself says she needs God to be her Savior. She delights and rejoices in the fact that God is her Savior. What does she need salvation from? Sin. Just like the rest of us. In that sense, Mary is just like us, a sinner in need of salvation. Sin is a spiritual cancer that is in all of us, eating away at our souls from the moment we're born. Sin is a malignancy in our hearts that causes our love for God to run dry and yet swell with love for just about anything else we can conceivably imagine and turn into a little idol for ourselves. Sin causes our hearts, in fact, to be a perpetual idol factory, rejecting the relationship of the, with the one true God that we were created to have, bowing down to all kinds of other things. Sin is the root of all evil in our life, as seen in every thought, word, and deed. Sin is the reason the righteous judgment of God hangs over every one of us and causes us to justly deserve his condemnation. Yet the whole point of Mary's rejoicing. The whole point of this book is that God sends a Savior. A Savior not just for Mary, not just for Israel, a Savior for the world. And that Savior is a substitute who will stand in our place and rescue us from God's wrath that we deserve. Therefore, we can rejoice in salvation that comes through a son. Salvation through a son. Unlike Mary, Jesus is the one who is born truly and completely sinless. He is the only one who is so unstained by sin that all that he does is perfect and right before God. He is the one whose body does not see corruption after death because he dies, but he lives again. And the death that he died is the worst possible death that anyone could possibly imagine. He will die as the one innocent righteous man in all the world, in all of history, the one righteous man who dies under the weight of the sins of all other men. That's how he becomes our Savior. He pays the penalty for our rebellion and idolatry. That was the son that Mary was carrying. This was the son promised for ages before that had been supernaturally conceived by God's Spirit within her. This was Jesus Christ, even the Son of God. And notice the context for all of this. Mary is rejoicing in God who saves even through her own son. And this privilege does not provoke pride within her. Just the opposite. She is humbled by this demonstration of God's grace in her life. And here, here we can learn from Mary. Because rejoicing in God's salvation, even in itself, can be a temptation to sin. It can be a source of pride. And frankly, we see it a lot at Christmas time, at least in this country. You see, there is a tendency, and it's, it's right-minded, but it, it, it goes too far into the wrong direction. There is a tendency for us to, to get so caught up in Christmas for all the wrong reasons. It is easy for us to get a chip on our shoulder as Christians at Christmas and be angry and be frustrated and be mocking of those around us who do not celebrate Christ at Christmas. And so, so we, can get, we can get so upset about the de-Christing of Christmas and the culture around us that pride wells up in our hearts because we know the reason for the season. We know that it's all about Jesus. And everybody else are simply fools and they're missing the point and they're sinning by taking Jesus out of it. First of all, is that really the worst thing about our country right now? 
Is that really the most dire need of our culture? Is to make sure Christ is put in Christmas? Or the most dire need of our culture is that Christ goes in people's hearts and souls and minds. That they believe in him and trust in him. But secondly, understand my, my, my goal here is not to say that we should switch out manger scenes with Santa Claus. But my, my point here is to say that, that knowing the reason for the season and keeping Christ in Christmas is more about a t-shirt or a sweatshirt or a pin that we wear or a banner on our Facebook page. It's about living a Christ-like life so that people will see what Christ is about. They will hear a Christ-centered message of grace. We should humbly give thanks for the salvation we have received and seek to proclaim it, to tell it, to share it with others. We love people. We, We don't get mad at people. Why should we get mad at pagans for not worshiping Christ? Now, on one level, it should provoke a righteous indignation within us because he alone is the Lord and Savior of all people. He alone should receive their worship. And yet, if they are ignorant in their sin, should we not pity them? Should should we not seek to show them the truth? One of my favorite examples comes from five guys in Seattle who one year went in to buy their coffee and meats, and each of them, after paying for their coffee, left the cashier an extra $20 bill. So by the time all these five friends had their coffee, there was a $100 tab waiting for anyone who would come after them in line for the coffee to be provided for. And these guys dropped their, their 100 and they went and they sat down to chat and to enjoy their, their caffeine. And guess what happened in a place like Seattle? People would come and they would say, I want my Fropa Macchino Latte something and um, thinking in their minds, maybe you don't have enough money to really pay for this, but I love it so much I want to have it. And the cashier says, it's already paid for. And they say, what are you talking about? Say, it's already paid for. Who paid for it? Those guys over there. So they get their coffee and they go over and say, thanks. That was great. Why did you do that? Why would you pay for my coffee? You don't even know me. And you know what they did? They put their feet up and said, let me tell you about a man who came and did more than just pay for coffee. He paid for our souls. And they shared the gospel. This is a representative of the mindset that Christians should have at Christmas. Not hoisting a banner that says we are against the world in all things because Christ should be in Christmas. No, a banner of love and grace and truth should be hoisted from our hearts knowing that we desire all men to hear the gospel and believe. That's what it means to rejoice in God's salvation during this season. And when we do that, we will magnify God as the God who saves. But fourth, we should also seek to magnify him by seeking God's mercy. By seeking God's mercy. One of the great spiritual tests we will ever have is receiving God's blessing. It seems completely the opposite of what we would think, right? God's blessing is a blessing. It's a gift. We rejoice in it. But the reality is every time God gives us something... We stand, as it were, at the pinnacle of a mountain with, 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 with two ways to go. And it's a steep mountain. Because, in fact, one way is very narrow, and the other side of the mountain is incredibly huge and broad. And we're likely tempted to fall into the broad way, which is sin. And it's simply this. What do we do with the gift that God has given to us? How do we respond? Will we waste it on ourselves? Will we allow it to be something we brag about as if we have done this great thing? Or will we be humbled by it and give thanks for it and use it for God's kingdom? 
That's, that's the spiritual test. So if, if, uh, if, if we are blessed with, with, with many children, what do we do with that blessing? Do, do we make them an idol and, and allow them to run the family and worship them? Or do we see our responsibility as parents to raise them in the fear and admonition of God? If we are given great wealth, do we pat ourselves on the back and say, this is owing to my great entrepreneurial spirit? I am a great businessman. Or do we say, God, I give you thanks for I know that this has come from your hand. And therefore, we use it for his glory. You see the potential danger that is there? This is why we will see in the months to come Jesus saying it is very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because pride and vanity and self-reliance can spring so easily from the blessings that God gives to us. Mary has been blessed by God and she knows it. Mary has been blessed by God in a phenomenal, almost, almost unfathomable way that she, of all people in the world, she is going to bear the Messiah. But rather than allow pride and boasting to swell up in her heart, humility and thankfulness become the theme of her life. And when she thinks about it, it becomes the central part of her prayer, recognizing God's merciful hand. Two questions then should come to our minds. First of all, we should ask, how does it magnify God for us to seek his mercy? And secondly, if we're going to magnify God by seeking his mercy, how should we do it? How do we actually go about seeking God's mercy? Yes, the first question is this. God is magnified when we seek his mercy because it, under, it shows that we understand who he is. This isn't just a friend we go asking for help. This is almighty God. He owes us nothing at all. And when we seek him, we know that what we give is simply that. It is mercy. We deserve much worse, but he blesses us. And his benevolence and his loving kindness is revealed. And therefore we rejoice in that. We give thanks in that. We lift up God for his mercy and we tell others about it. So, how do we go about seeking God's mercy? Well, by definition, on one level, it's God's mercy. It's not something that you earn. It's not something you deserve. And so, there is no push A, push B, pull C, and out pops God's mercy. It doesn't work that way. Nevertheless, within the context of the entirety of God's Bible, and not least of which in these verses, Mary is very clear that there, there is a kind of person that God delights to give mercy to that God delights to pour out his love upon. Here's what he says. First of all, there is mercy for the fearful. There is mercy for the fearful. In verse 50, Mary says, God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. What does it mean to fear God? Does it mean to hide in the corner and say, please don't strike me dead? No, no, no. Fear in this context is part of worshiping him. It is acknowledging who he is and therefore living reverently and obediently towards him. This is the kind of person that God delights to give mercy to. But more than that, he also delights to give mercy for the humble. There is mercy for the humble. In verse 51, God has shown strength in his arm. He has scouted the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Think about, think about what we have seen so far in the Gospel of Luke. Think about all the people in the world that God could have sent his son the most, the most worthy and glorious being who will ever put his foot on this sinful soil. Where should he have been born? Among the heights of power, right? I mean, that's where he should have came. He should have, he should have came like a king entering his kingdom. That's not, that's not what God did. 
he, he completely reverses everything that we expect. We expect great power to have great glory and to be exalted. And God says, no, I will humble the exalted and I will exalt the humble. I will take the most unlikely person you could ever imagine would bear the Savior of the world and that's who I'm going to entrust, her, entrust him to. This, this young peasant girl, Mary. It's amazing. But what that also means is that the worst possible position we can be in is having a proud heart before God. Because at its core, a proud heart is putting itself in the place of God. It is refusing to depend on Him. It is refusing to give Him credit. It is refusing to serve Him as we were created to do. Therefore, the Apostle James says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, I don't ever want to be in a position where God is in opposition to me. That, that, that does provoke a different kind of fear in me. And what does James say? He opposes the proud. And James knows what he's talking about, doesn't he? Because he had a great view of humility. He saw, as Jesus' half-brother, humanity incarnate for 30 years. I bring that up because if we, if we want to know what humility looks like, if we want to see how someone who is the greatest of all beings can also be humble, we look to Jesus. Because that was the life that he lived. He put humility on display. That was driven home several years ago by one, uh, two, one medical missionary who went to China to serve as a doctor. And as he was out in the remote villages of a mountain region, he was gripped by what he saw. And he wrote back in one of his newsletters this. He says, As I felt disgusted by the dirt and the poverty, or felt anger as I saw the begging street children with injuries or wombs, likely inflicted by their so-called owners so that they could get more cash, I also recalled that it was into the poor and backward corner of the Roman Empire that our Savior came. His arrival announcement was given to the marginalized, and he was accused of spending his time with the wrong people. The greatness of his heart's love is seen in all this, for our nicest dwellings are a dump compared to his heavenly dwelling. But he bypassed all that and visited the neediest. Is, is it any wonder that God delights in the humble if this is how he choose to make himself known in the world? Third, there is mercy for the hungry. There is mercy for the hungry. Mary says God has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Again, you have a poor people that receive the greatest gift God could imagine. And I, and I think in a play on words, it is not just the physical hunger. It is the spiritual hunger that is there. Those that have everything and think that they can sustain themselves, they actually go away spiritually hungry because they exalt themselves before God. While those who hunger after God find themselves satisfied and full. What do we hunger for? Do we hunger for the latest gadget or a pretty girl? Do we hunger for recognition or a deep relationship? The Bible is clear that ultimately those that hunger for God will be satisfied, not those that hunger for other things. God will be merciful to them and he will satisfy them by giving them himself. When we seek God's mercy, we magnify him. We lift him up. We exalt him because we show him to be great in all his glory. And the way to seek his mercy is by coming to the end of ourselves. It's by fearing him and humbling ourselves before him and hungering after him. That's how we can magnify God. And finally, we can magnify God by trusting his promises, by trusting God's promises. 
God had made a promise to Mary. He will give her a son who will be the long-promised Messiah, even the Savior of the world. Now, how is she going to trust that promise? Is she going to have faith in him that is going to lead her to do all that he says? How is she going to have that kind of faith? How can she come to trust God? Well, think about what we've seen so far. Mary has treasured God's word in her heart where she has come to know his character that has caused her to rejoice in his salvation and continue to seek his mercy. This is Mary's experience of God. And it's no small stretch to see her now trusting God's promises. But what is your experience with God? Do you find yourself daily trusting in God's promises? Do you find yourself daily looking to him and depending upon him? If not, how do you come to that place? How do you get to the place in your life where you can trust God implicitly in everything? Like Mary, we should do three things. We should, first of all, remember his past fulfillment. We should remember his past fulfillment. In verse 54, Mary says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Why is this important? Because Mary is demonstrating her faith in the promises of God. God had promised his blessings on Israel, and she remembers how he fulfilled them in the past. And now she believes he will continue to fill them through the child she will bear. Now, I know that all of you are far too godly to be involved in betting on the ponies, right? I mean, that's just, you know, nobody snuck off to the cash station to get that multi-million, billion, gazillion ticket or whatever it was. I don't care. As long as you tied it, it's fine. So, no, I'm just, I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. But the question is, have you ever thought about it, all these sporting events? I mean, the, the, the Brits are great. Anything that happens. When they were casting the, the new James Bond years ago, they had odds on which actor would be the guy when, they, when it was finally announced. And I'm thinking, how do you come up with this stuff? And, and, and you know, the, the question is, especially for sports teams, you have all these odds. How do you know it's, it's 3 to 1 or 10 to 1? The reality is most of the time it's based on past performance. How has this team played in the past? How have they played in these conditions? It's going to be cold and snowy, or it's going to be hot and sunny. How do they play against this team last year? How do they play at this point in their season last year? All of those things figure into the odds based on past performance. Now think about what we have in the Bible. What do we have in the Bible? We've essentially got God's resume, don't we? We have a record of his past performance. We have, uh, as you're reading through the Bible, we see all the ways that he has made promises to God, and then he has kept those promises. So even when you read something like a genealogy or a distribution of land list in Joshua, in all of its painstaking detail, and you're thinking, why, oh, why, oh, God, am I having to read this? Why is this in your word? Why did you put this where? And the, the answer is this. Even if it bores you to death, God will prove he is exhaustingly faithful to his promises. You can trust him based upon his past fulfillment. And that leads us to, secondly, rely on his present faithfulness. Rely on his present faithfulness. If we remember his past fulfillment, we will come to rely on his present faithfulness. Leah Duncan says, like Mary, we need to learn to lay hold of God's promises. We must grow in our grasp of and our faith in these Bible promises. We walk by faith, but faith leans on the promises. And those promises will bear all the weight that we can lay upon them. We may lean on them confidently. Why? Because God has made those promises. And therefore they will not fail. Isn't that what Mary did? She looked to the past, and it gave her confidence in the present. She said, look, God made all those promises to the people in the past, and she kept them. Now he's making promises to me. And what did she do? She trusted God. 
She relied on the fact that he was going to be faithful in the moment. Now, one day after the next to her. So much so that she stared difficulty and ridicule and uncertain future in the face. And she says, it's all going to be okay. God will be faithful to keep his promise to me. For us today, we should not only look to the past to rely on the present, but in doing so, we should also reflect on God's promised future. We should reflect on God's promised future. Again, think about this holiday season. It, it's, it's Christmas time in the city, right? A time to not only remember the fulfillment of God's promises to send Christ, but the fulfillment to save all who believe in him as Lord and Savior. Those are not just promises that we believe once. We don't just believe the promise of the gospel to get into the Christian life. We continue to believe it each and every day. And we demonstrate that faith and our trust as we depend on him. And as we depend on him, we magnify him. Why? Because in our dependence upon God, we bring together two things, his might and his fidelity. The fact that he is all-powerful and the fact that he will always keep his promises. That's what we reveal when we depend on God. When we trust him with our lives, we show him to be both powerful and reliable. God will be faithful to his promises and is powerful enough to keep them. Not just during this Christmas season, but during the course of your life. How are we going to seek to rely on God? How are we going to, more importantly, magnify God with our lives? To show him to be a great and glorious God. When, when someone who doesn't know God comes in here and they see you singing praise, do they think, that God's not worth much? Or do they think, what a great God. Look at how they worship him. When, when they see you live your lives dependent on God, or perhaps not, do they say, what a great God. Or they must not much think much of their God. When we tell people about the, the joyous events in our life, about the birth of a baby, the, the, the reception of a new job, or whatever it is, people go away saying, I wonder if they believe in God. Or it's amazing how much they believe in God. The call for us is to magnify God with our lives and ultimately, Ultimately, if you get nothing else out of this, what you see in all of these things ultimately comes down to this, that we are humbly dependent upon him. That's what all these things point to. Therefore, I close with this quote from J.C. Ryle. Let us rise from our beds every morning with a deep conviction that we are debtors and that every day we have more mercies than we deserve. Father, we are thankful for this day that you have given to us. We are thankful for your word, which is meant to, to bolster us in life and to change us and to transform us. And God, I pray that we would have heard it well. God, I pray that we would meditate on it, that we would think about it, that we would make it our own, that we would look to you as the source of strength and comfort in every time of our life. Father, most of all, that you would help us to see that all of your promises have been fulfilled in your one and only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. When we have him, we need nothing else. And so, God, through Christ and our trust in him, our imitation of him, may we magnify your name. We ask all this in Jesus' name.